Live from the International Research Debate Associates podcast studio in lovely, livable Queens, New York City, Jamaica, Queens, I might add, this is In the Bend, your one-stop shop for news and views on everything, oratory, debate, rhetoric, communication, argumentation. I am a Dr. Steve Yano, the Delta variant of podcast hosts, here to cut through your inoculation. And uh, infect your ears with all kinds of interesting tidbits of information. Well, it has been a long time, Ben fans, since we have uh, been here. Uh, Anchor.fm slash in the bin is the site if you want to hear something that's uh, from the middle of the pandemic, the middle of the, uh, uh, the uh, what did we call that? Where everyone was stuck in their house? Lockdown. The Lockdown. Yeah, the pandemic. The pandemic. Uh, yesterday. The pandemic sexual. <laughs> oh. The uh, yeah. Anyway, this is not what this is about. I don't know that Kate approved that. <laughs> oh, and going in that spot. No, probably not. Probably not. I have I have some real intellectual property claims about the use of my voice. <laughs> it could have been you. Have you done voice work? This could be you that I paid for. I could have gotten it no, for free. No, no, no. Anyway, we have a great panel here today. Today, this episode is special because we have been invited. I, I don't really know how. I've, I've worked my entire life to be as unprofessional as I possibly can in the podcasting space. But we still got invited to be a part of the big rhetorical podcast carnival. And uh, I really appreciate being a part of it. In the bin, we appreciate being a part of it. Hopefully, you'll come check us out. We are um, the first, the only, and the highest rated podcast about debate and argumentation in the world i'm pretty sure there there were a couple of kids doing a high school debate podcast they might have better numbers than us from arizona i invited them on the show and they turned me down so i i feel like perhaps maybe they're better than us but uh anyway we're happy that you're listening and the big rhetorical podcast carnival theme is contending with misinformation in the community in the classroom this is why we got invited i think all we've ever done is provide misinformation whatever that might be. I don't know. But we've got a great panel here. Uh, this is the second annual uh, Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival, which you can follow all of the episodes at hashtag TBR Podcast Carnival 2021 and the hashtag Contending with Misinformation. And uh, there's going to be a keynote released on August 19th. There's all kinds of information you can get. If you Google Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival, you get all the information about all the different episodes and stuff. We're happy to be here. Joining me, Dr. Kate Morrison from Lowell Rhodey, University of Rhode Island, debate director and uh, professor extraordinaire, which I really do think should be a title. Hello, Kate. Hello. How's everybody doing? It's good. It's been so long. It's nice to hear your voice through uh, the through the internet once again. Lovely. Indeed, the magic of digital communication. Uh, finally, I am on a screen and I don't feel oppressed by it after about a year and a half of online teaching. So congratulations, you've made being on a screen fun again. Wow, already. This is an excellent episode. <laughs> also, George Fitzpatrick, the best debater you've never heard of, joins us from his uh, secret bunker, his secret laboratory slash woodworking facility slash bunker in somewhere in Connecticut. I'm, I'm yes, not, I guess. it is somewhere in Connecticut. I decided to escape the worst northeastern state to go all the way to the second worst northeastern <laughs> state of Connecticut, where the taxes are just as high, but 
um, at the very least, you aren't contending with awful winters and a very mediocre uh, state school that employs you. Uh, oh. So I'm happy to be in Connecticut, happy to be uh, back at my alma mater, St. John's, and well, uh, right. you know, at a, at a university I can really sink my teeth into, metaphorically. No, I think, I think literal teeth sinking might be required to keep the university functioning. Perhaps, perhaps. We might have uh, and to I'm sell some of our if, teeth. Yes, yes. And I'm happy to be on this podcast where all of our rhetoricians will be like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, fighting the losing battle against misinformation. Wow. <laughs> Boy, you really did prepare. I'm surprised. This is great. That's great. What a great metaphor. I don't know, I don't know about me being cynical as preparation. Oh, it's, I, it's, like, it's what we all come back for. George is also, for those of you um, who are listening, which is all of you, because I'm not posting the video. Uh, George is wearing the most fantastic New York Mets shirt I have ever seen in my life. Well, oh the players God. aren't playing with any pride, so I guess the fans still have to be showing some pride for the rest of the season. LFGM. That's all I have to say. Damn right. <laughs> also joining us is Chicago's very own Dr. Will Silberman, who joins us from his corner office in downtown Chicago, where he is a commodities broker. Uh, deals with misinformation every day with pork bellies and orange juice and all those things. Uh, I learned about commodities from trading spaces. That's my mm-hmm. that's my knowledge. But no, he's not. He's actually a communication PhD, University of Kentucky. Uh, welcome, Will. Welcome back to the show. Hello, 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 Steve. Have you been drinking coffee responsibly? Irresponsibly, my good friend. Oh, actually, I just oh. got back from a two-week bender in Seattle. Had a great time. And uh, tried a lot of different coffee there, and it was pretty good. I mean, there's more than Starbucks to Seattle. Who knew? Mm-hmm. Lots of different roasters. I love Seattle. Good yeah. coffee. Me Absolutely. too. Seattle was just lovely. It was just lovely. But mm-hmm. now it's, it's back to our, now back to uh, and now on to misinformation. What can we say about misinformation? Uh, this is the theme for the big rhetorical podcast carnival, and I'll, I'll give my quick take to kind of get us um, started. I wonder if having an idea that there's such a thing as misinformation is useful in the first place. Uh, it might be better to have a concept of there are. Things people think they know, and they want to share them, and we should encourage people to share these things because that is how democracy works. People share their point of view. If you have this idea of there's misinformation and information, and that before one begins the inquiry, before one begins the conversation, there's some information that's better than others, you're sort of harming the ability of people to kind of share what's most important, I think, to the democratic order, which is perception. And we see that breaking down uh, with um, all the demand for factacity that we see today, where people are like, if you don't have your facts, do your own research. I'm not going to talk to you. Do your own research. We hear that all the time, or we read that all the time if we're on social media. Um, uh, if, if that's what you think, I'm not going to talk to you. You're just unpersuadable. And all these, like, they're kind of dated now, but I think Kate will remember all these studies about brain scans of Democrats and Republicans and how the different parts of their brain lights up. I don't know if this stuff is still going on but how people are like genetically predisposed to be a particular kind of political creature, which I think is such a horrific conflation of uh, Aristotelian ideas about politics and everything else. It's just defies. How did, how did that get approved Who like what Democrats or Republicans were like, yeah, scan my brain. What's up? Like Like, this, I mean, this kind of research, I don't know. I mean, it used to make front page headlines. I mean, I'm just kind of showing my age here about like, we scanned the brain. We had a bunch of, uh, Teenage men and teenage women read these five pages of Moby Dick, and we scan their brain. They lit up in different places. So men are from Mars, women are from Venus. This kind of thing, like the yeah. stuff that the stuff that that stacks the deck, or in Marcusean terms, loads the dice in terms of what democratic communication needs, which is a process. 
So I would suggest mm-hmm. that there is no place outside of rhetoric where one can get information. So this idea of misinformation seems like a judgment that's always related to time and situation. There's no such thing as misinformation outside of the the moment. It feels like people are kind of stretching to say, okay, students, you got to go get information from these good sources. And it would be better to have the con- the conversation of what are these good sources? So my idea, the way I've been thinking about it since it's the summer, is I've been thinking about it in terms of rip currents and how rip currents will, if you swim against them, they always pull you out to sea. You're supposed to kind of swim with them until mm-hmm. you can get to a place where you can get back to the shore. So that's the way I've been thinking about it, about it, misinformation in the classroom is to say, uh, and, in, and in society is to say, instead of making that be the starting point of any kind of rhetorical exchange, let's just make that the rhetorical exchange and say, I'm much more interested in your position, your perspective, than whether or not you got your information from the approved pop scientists of the day or whoever, whoever it might be that you're listening to. Um, You know, some people think that Joe Rogan has all the facts. Some people think Neil deGrasse Tyson has all the facts, whatever, or uh, MSNBC or whoever it is. It might might be much, much better to abandon this concept of it or maybe come up with the opposite concept. might be kind of fun, like what's hit information? So there's misinformation, information, hit information. What's hit information? Like information that is so right it cannot be discussed. And that would be extraordinarily harmful to democratic ordering as well, I I would say. So that's just kind of like, that's my starting place, I guess. I don't know if anybody wants to say anything about that. But that's what I've been thinking about as I think about misinformation. You guys, guys, go ahead. Yeah. I guess the real question I would have is the is the democratic exchange of ideas working in the places where we sort of expect it to be. There have been increasing studies on social media, for example, increasing to polarization and increasing to polarization in ways that aren't what you'd expect. Normally, when you think of something like confirmation bias being something that might drive misinformation, like telling you what you already want to hear or what your brain is already saying is okay, we're sort of seeing that we may have like this backfire effect going on. Not only is confirmation bias uh, uh, worse when you have more and more information, when you feel the sort of overload of information. So almost sort of the PSA method of like, go get your COVID-19 shot might be backfiring if it's the message that you're constantly inundated with on social media and you're already resistant. You also have the weird effect going on where we find that when you aren't quite in what we'd envision an echo chamber of where you're only talking to people of like, like political mind or like, like worldview people, uh, a lot of studies have been showing on social media that even if you get your news from a wide variety of sources or you communicate with people from various parts of uh, various parts of the political spectrum on social media, even if your individual views don't change your identification with the particular party you may have leaned towards becomes much more strong. So even if you aren't necessarily more of a Democrat in that you have more left-leaning views uh, relative to the United States, you feel like more of a Democrat, even if you're interacting with both Democrats and Republicans on social media. So I'm wondering if the entire approach of we need to have this open, uh, this sort of like, you know, marketplace of ideas, this very old school Democratic idea isn't really how the human brain works at all. And in fact, this sort of open marketplace of ideas is actually just making us more tribal in a very, very strange kind of counterintuitive way where we become so overloaded with information that our brain sort of retreats to what it finds comfortable, retreats to its existing worldview. 
And I'm worried that, like, if we continue to approach misinformation is to say, no, we need to have thought leaders out there showing, like, the correct way of looking at these particular opinions. We need to have Facebook taking things down or putting things up, claiming that certain things are misinformation, if that's just making the problem worse, a lot worse. And and in a way that in, in a way that sort of and this is sort of what I was getting at in the intro. Are we just pushing that rock up the hill? Do we do we have no really good method for fighting misinformation right now? We we were misinformed about Sisyphus's whereabouts. That's yes, all, that's all. There was nowhere near a hill. Actually, he Kate, was at home. Uh, go ahead, Kate. Yeah, I think that we can think about the ways of being able to address misinformation if we don't think about misinformation in terms of individual defective units. Right. Uh, and more as a problem of material networks of production, of distribution and of consumption. Right. Uh, so it's not the existence of hoodoo that's really the problem. Right. Uh, we're probably not going to figure out one weird trick to get people to stop hoodooing one another. Um, but the monetization incentivizing hoodoo's creation absolutely can be changed and challenged, right? Like it can be followed, uh, it can be intervened in. Um, and so, especially I think if we like think about the circulation of misinformation on social media, it's important to remember that these spaces of discourse uh, didn't pay for themselves. That's right. Uh, and they're not the way that they are because they support healthy discussion, but because of the way they do get paid for. Um, so, like, some of the stuff that's really interesting to me are the places where um, the folks that are already kind of in communities that have sort of angles or pitches. So you see this early on in COVID with, like, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and stuff like that. Um, they get the sort of angle. And then from there, they build the grift. So we get like America's frontline doctors. They're the ones that I am absolutely obsessed with at this point. Um, they start out with uh, the uh, demon sperm doctor. Uh, oh, incident. yes. I remember this. <laughs> yes. and so the why, problems, why am right? I not obsessed with first, this? This is amazing. Why right. am I not still obsessed? That guy was amazing. <laughs> and so like they're in... Um, they're in lab coats and, you know, uh, presenting a sort of... Uh, legitimizing face to um, a, a, a bunch of uh, ridiculousness, but in and of itself, that didn't really get them anywhere, right? They kind of disappear. But what happens behind the scenes is they set themselves up using the loosened COVID regulations on telemedicine and online pharmacies uh, to become a consulting service, right? So uh, you... Uh, uh, contact them. You get for $90 a consultation with one of their networks of physicians. So Stella Emanuel, the, the demon sperm doctor, she's making hand, money hand over fist right now, uh, writing prescriptions for stuff like they're, they're focused mostly on uh, hydroxychloroquine, but if you want ivermectin, they're happy to help you with that. Mm. Um, in part because they've split themselves off from another organization that focuses on ivermectin, right? Rather than compete with one another, they've just sort of split the field. They're using systems for telemedicine and online pharmacies that then build their own market share, right? They started from almost nothing and are suddenly mm. viable businesses. And all of this can also function like part of the reason I think that people are 
hesitant to talk about these sort of material networks of production is that we start to then have to talk about the material networks of misinformation um, in places like institutionalized science. So one of the places that America's frontline doctors gets a lot of um, juice from is the Surgisphere uh, scandal. Uh, so this was a, a situation that results in the retraction of uh, really important articles in both the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, the Lancet Journal uh, is the one that really shuts down WHO uh, investigations of hydro hydroxychloroquine because they found out, uh, they found, uh, I'm using air quotes for people listening, yeah. uh, that we there an were- air quote, an air quote sound. Uh, yeah, for, oh. for cardiac, they-, they uh, saw associations with cardiac issues. Uh, mm. Now, what we wind up finding out is that Surgisphere, the company that was supposed to be providing the data, um, have essentially, it, until we could confirm otherwise, made it up, yeah. right? All of it, yeah. none of it's right, right? So we have the same kind of um, parasitical to fully exploitative sort of um, marginal characters right, building themselves around the same kinds of failings in academic publication that then become uh, a grist for the mill for people like America's Frontline Doctors to say, hey, look, there has been some sort of uh, conspiracy to show that this uh, medicine was bad when it's actually fine. Um, and so I think that that's part of the reason that uh, when we look at misinformation, it feels way better if we're just looking at like a meme that's wrong or yeah, right. like a factoid that has gone wrong instead of the systems that allow these things to happen. Yeah, or like or like students don't know how to use the library. Well, of course they don't. Have you ever been in a high school library in the past 10, 15 years? Most of them are gone. Right. They got like Books one librarian. Who, yeah, they got like one librarian comes in once a week, right? In some places, right? And they just don't have... That kind of, I mean, they're just not getting it. So it makes us feel a lot, but I think you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about this as like uh, material, like networks of production, but thinking about it as a network issue is exactly right. And just, I mean, that's exactly right. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah, and, and the fact that it's named Surgisphere, which the only thing I can picture is a gigantic circle of scalpels coming after me, is the most insidious <laughs> part of all. The Lancet presents... Mad Max 3, Surgisphere, <laughs> rated R. Check local really listings, opens now. Friday in select cities. They better not make it a PG-13 in editing. That has no, to be you know, hard R film. If I was in that room, PG-13, I'd say, that's the death knell for this production company. We're going to get bought by Amazon tomorrow if we make it PG-13. Put some more swear words in there. Dr. Silberman. I think it's entirely worth us evaluating this information overload as an issue of health. And when I say health, I mean one of like public health in which individuals are addicted to either getting information or using information to be a part of an in crowd, mm. right? And when I say that, there's two types of addictions being fed here, right? The first is individuals who are glued to their devices, who are doing their own research, and I use that with quotes, um, and wanting the social satisfaction and the appeal of being right mm. and on the right side of science, right? Like individuals who are claiming to have be 
or claiming to have been doing all their readings and uh, being knowledgeable about the mask mandates and the, you know knowledgeable about the science, but not really having a grasp on what any of this means, right? They want to be socially validated, and that's a huge addiction that's been you know fueled by social media over the past decade, right? And now information is becoming in, entangled in that. Mm-hmm. But the other more problematic addiction is the the addiction to salacious knowledge, right? Individuals who find out something secret about the government, right, or something secret of, secret about the the corona the corona the COVID vaccine or the you know the origins of COVID, and it sends them down this long rabbit hole of information that could or couldn't be verifiably true, but the fact that like oh there's something more there's something more it continuously feeds into your idea of you know the 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 riptide right in the sense that you know oh i'm i'm going you know against the grain i'm i'm you know i clearly know something that that you know the government or the the cabal wants to suppress and they don't want us to know this right and you know i think that's a really big concern right so if we yeah. want to to address you know the information overload and it's associated, you know, the, the the rampant, you know, spread of fake news or misinformation, right? I think an addiction perspective is absolutely important, right? Because there are so many individuals who are addicted to the um, um, dopamine rush of finding something so salacious that's so damning it will expose everything at a cyber symposium. Yeah. Well, I think an interesting thing that happened, I would say, about a week ago uh, you're a baseball fan, so you probably are already familiar with this. Is the incident that happened? Uh, is the incident that happened at the Colorado Rockies game involving in, involving uh, Lewis uh, Lewis Brinson? Uh, there was a belief that a fan at the Colorado Rockies game said the N word toward a African American player on the Miami Marlins. But when later video evidence came out, it became more apparent that he was referring to the Rockies mascot Dinger and was just sort of misheard on the on the, like on the broadcast. And there was a sort of huge explosion, huge controversy that kind of came out of that where I swear to, where people that had never tweeted about baseball in their entire lives and could not be less interested in the sport were sort of diving on this to sort of dunk on the institution of baseball for being racist or baseball fans for being racist. And it's not to sort of say that like this couldn't have happened or was definitively what happened, but there was this huge movement over 12 hours to sort of condemn this fan, condemn the Rockies, condemn the institution of baseball. And then when more evidence came out and the Rockies investigated that that probably wasn't the case, that the person said a racial slur, then there was a retraction from the Rockies. But many of the people who were sort of on that riptide, on that dopamine rush that Will is talking about, didn't really have anything to say about the issue after that. So I think that it's important to realize that oftentimes when these sort of judgments happen, there's a big commitment to being on the train in the first place to be like one of the first people to be there, but not really a big commitment to following through with it if it turns out to be a completely different situation. There aren't people out there, like, for example, tweeting retractions to what they might have said about the fan or apologizing for attempting to dox the fan and his family, which – there were some instances of something like that occurring. I'm sure so, they probably were successful so, at it too. Yeah. And, and the, that's the sort of thing that I think we really need to realize here is when are we 
talking about an issue so that we can be part of an in-group or that we can feel like we're part of the discourse going on or so we can get the dopamine rush from social media? And when are we tweeting about an issue because we actually care about it being right? You know, like, yeah. Yeah. if this were true, if someone said the N-word at a baseball player at the game, this is a problem. This is a huge mm-hmm. issue that, like, the fan needs to be banned from. But we also need fan needs to be banned from games going forward. But we also need to realize that when you hop on that train, people need to have like sort of an ethical need for themselves. I think sort of an ethical mm-hmm. um, perspective to say, look, if I'm wrong about this, or I might be wrong about this, or there's more information about this, I should make sure that my followers know it. I should make sure that I tweet out that this wasn't the particular case. And there's no real commitment on that end because that kills the dopamine rush. It kills the dopamine rush to know that you might be wrong about something. And that goes right in with confirmation bias. Learning about things that challenge your worldview or challenge the ideas that you already have is painful to your brain. It's something your brain wants to avoid. And I think that's sort of where the toxic nature of social media as an entertainment device, as a dopamine creation device really helps to channel a lot of the misinformation going on because the idea of learning something you already know is a lot more satisfying to your brain to learn something that might cha- than learning something that might actually challenge the ideas that you have. Yeah, I got I got a couple things to say about that, but Will, if you want to respond, go ahead. If you got anything to say yeah. what George said there. But I got a couple I, think- of, I got a couple of takes on that and I don't know a thing about Blurm's ball. I mean baseball. I admittedly my knowledge of uh, all sports really is is low. Uh, I only play fantasy football because I like math. So oh. today I learned about the Colorado Rockies. Um, no, but uh, um, you know I, th- I think you're right. It's really important for us to evaluate information A and B, decide how to act with that information. Right? What is the end goal? of using that information, right? Are we going, are we trying to make social change or are we simply reacting to something that's, you know, that's an end result of the, um, you know, um, dopamine rush and we're just doing it to, to sort of release that um, dopamine, right? And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure what the best course of action is. Because I would like to think that a lot of people are critical thinkers and are actually evaluating the information that they're consuming on a regular basis. But time and time again, I'm proved wrong. And it's unfortunate. Yeah, I wonder I wonder about this baseball example, George. You know a lot more about this than me, so I'm going to have to rely on your deep, deep and, and, and encyclopedic knowledge of baseball. Um, the, uh, this incident uh, seems to me to be more of a rhetorical exigence than an example of misinformation. Just getting it wrong isn't enough for something to be misinformation, I think. I think, I I think Kate's theory kind of speaks to that, that what you have is sort of a material network of production that almost has its own inertia behind it. So I wonder if, I wonder about the one thing we might discuss is what's the difference between being wrong and spreading misinformation? Because a lot of times, I mean, in rhetoric, we don't, in speech com rhetoric anyway, we don't like to talk about intent. Um, we kind of think intent's kind of a bad word. But um, there might be a useful theory of intent here behind this. Um, secondly, um, confirmation bias. It's a feature, not a bug, right? Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber have, have pretty much, in my mind, conclusively proved this in their book, The Enigma of Reason, which has a wonderful title. I like saying it just because it makes me feel like, like I'm like, um, you know, 
Audible presents the Enigma I know, I was, of Reason. I, I was thinking PBS with their five-part special. Hello, <laughs> welcome, welcome to public television. All three <laughs> of you who are watching right now are here to enjoy the Enigma of Reason. So um, Enigma of Reason is a great book. They say confirmation bias is a feature, not a bug. And they say that, you know, reason and logic and rationality are all um, just kind of, uh, you know, remixes of communication. Communication is the evolutionary trait, not logic, not reason. And I, I think that when you think about um, misinformation and you think about confirmation bias, social media short circuits the way confirmation bias is supposed to work. Your sp- confirmation bias is supposed to get you into a conversation with other people to figure out what to do very quickly. And then they also notice the compensatory, to use the lovely uh, Burkean uh, phrase, the compensatory idea that uh, people are very, very harsh on other people's ideas, but they let their own ideas kind of get away with a lot. So this is an evolutionary adaptation or a social adaptation, however you want to talk. They say evolutionary. You can say psychological, whatever you want. The point is, is that confirmation bias helps you make decisions as social creatures. Now, what does what does Facebook do? It gives you a simulation, a very bad simulation of being part of a society, a very an incredibly bad simulation that actually, as Kate really well pointed out, is designed to show you ads that are going to make you spend your money on things you don't necessarily even know exist before you see the ad. So when you're being shown people's conversation and points with that as the rubric, rather than another kind of rubric like you would in in uh, in public, that would be the thing. Now back to this baseball thing. So this happens and people assume there's a racial slur. This opens up a giant conversation about baseball's institutional racist past. A conversation worth having at any point. That absolutely exists and is a big problem. Right. And still persists in the effects of who plays baseball to this day. Yeah, like absolutely. Go to to Cooperstown and you'll be able to see a a big celebration of a bunch of racists. Right? Like all immortalized there. Right. So um, we have to be kind of careful about what we wish for in in this in this kind of stuff, because a lot of people say, oh, I don't want to go that far. So if we have a hard and fast theory of misinformation that exists prior to the rhetorical exigence or prior to rhetoric, then we're in a lot of trouble here because then we just won't have exigencies for those kind of conversations. That's that's one point. And then there was another point I wanted to make, but I can't I can't remember what it was. Oh, the rip current thing. So. In the classroom, we're teaching students to swim against the current. We're like, get to the shore of the library. Get to the shore of research. When I think we need to be like, let's sit down next to bad information and get to know it. And I think that would be a wonderful way to teach this kind of material. I'm kind of fascinated with this. And also, I also haven't seen uh, the new um, Suicide Squad, but I think hydroxychloroquine is my favorite character. Isn't that a character in Suicide Squad? Hydroxychloroquine, no, the woman who's but it like easily jo- could be. Joker's girlfriend, isn't that hydroxychloroquine? <laughs> yes, it's yes. The Suicide Squad, not just Suicide yes. Squad. The Suicide Margot Squad. Margot Robbie the portraying hydroxychloroquine coming soon to um, <laughs> a, a poorly a, a clinic that doesn't accept insurance near you. I kind of want uh, this I because th- I want to see uh, Jared Leto as Donald Trump. Oh God, that's the this is the worst idea you've ever had. I will wow. say that right now. Jared Leto is Donald you. Trump. I cannot want anything less. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. I, I will so say much. though that there's a fine that I think not to nitpick too much here, but I think there's a fine line between the things that you're talking about here, uh-huh. where I think an exigence can become a mis- misinformation if it's not corrected over over time. Like let's think of something maybe the most famous piece of misinformation in the world. The um the 
the the the fake MMR study that came out in the Lancet in the in the late nineties linking the MMR vaccine to autism that proved to be completely made up. Wait, that's not true. If you yeah, just well, kidding. It, just okay, kidding. We'll, we will deal with that misinformation <laughs> later. But if you see that study at first, and you see it coming out in a publication like The Lancet that, in theory, does good fact checking, and you conclude, "Holy crap, this is a game changer! This changes the way I think about this vaccine." That's one thing. But if you find out the origins of the study later, that it was commissioned by a bunch of law commissioned by a bunch of law firms in England in order to sue the pharmaceutical companies and had no resemblance to the truth whatsoever anywhere in the study. And you continue to, and you don't correct what you thought about it, or you don't correct what you, or you don't sort of come out and say like, no, I was kind of wrong about this. And you sort of persist with that idea that this original study was true. And this person is being silenced in some way. I do think that there's a point where that exigence does become misinformation over time. Things can start as like these exigencies of being wrong and turn into an entire cycle of misinformation because we've seen people, whether it's like Mercola selling vitamin B17 or any of the other like sort of hucksters when it comes to, pseudoscientific like treatments for cancer or autism or whatever um, that have sort of taken like sort of bits of misinformation over time, like retracted studies and turned them into an entire career. And that's exactly what Kate is talking about with networks. Like if you don't view yourself as a part of a network that has a responsibility to ethically put forth information in that network and correct yourself when you're wrong, do you eventually become part of the network that allows for people who need legitimate cancer treatment buying lay trial off the internet at four in the morning instead mm. of going to a chemotherapist? That's the sort of question that I have about you as a retor that is participating in social media, that is participating in, the, in Facebook, participating in networks that may not have your best interests at heart. Do you become part of the problem when you contribute to a discourse that turns out to not you contribute to a discourse or contribute to a wrong or misleading piece of information that ends up like spiraling out of control? I don't think that would necessarily happen for Colorado Rockies guy, but I do think we can think of examples where one wrong piece of information leads to a persistent kind of confirmation bias within a group of people that creates its own network that like creates more and more misinformation and creates more and more of an echo chamber in which, in which like people continually can kind of be victim, can be victims of. And I think if we don't think of ourselves as participants in those, in, in the, as an individual, as participants in those sorts of um, networks, then I, I really think that the cause is already kind of lost. I think that, um, Putting sort of together both the question of what do we do and how do we teach it? And I definitely agree with you, Steve. This is the way uh, I teach the rhetoric of science. I joke a lot that I worry that one day an administrator is going to look too closely at what I'm doing. Oh, yes. <laughs> because, I mean, like last semester, we we looked at pieces of pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, well, luckily, most where uh, all the weird communities are and where to go to find it. Yeah, luckily, uh, most administrators are um, they're not interested in reading. So I think I think we're safe. College administrators, <laughs> they don't do they read books. I don't think they read much of anything. I've heard rumors, but I don't think we've ever been able to. I think you're that. I think you're safe. But anyway, pandemic. 
um, or, you know, the uh, giving them advice on uh, for because we have a uh, assignment where some of them have to role play genuinely as anti-vax people. I've been doing this for years. It's now a little bit heightened um, and they need to have models. Mm. Right. For how mm. these people argue. Um, and so, you know, I send them down some weird rabbit holes. Um, and I have never seen a bad thing happen from that. Right. I think that a lot of the popular discourse on misinformation is that it is like when we think about it as a little unit, then it's a little virus. Right. And it's going to get in and infect you. Um, and uh, you've talked about this a lot, Steve, that engagement with argumentation is often an act of inoculation where you're going to be exposed to it, mm -hmm. right? And what I've consistently found is the inoculative effect, right? Uh, I, I think that sometimes our popular culture with this information might actually be responding weirdly the way that a lot of these anti-vaccine people are, which is, no, 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 you see, if you have... The, the the vaccine, you could actually have an even more outsized response to it. Like, no, no, actually, that's not the way it works at all. Yeah, and you see people um, who are on that side, disturbingly more and more on social media, arguing for authoritarianism, arguing for like, yeah. you know, Taliban style, like they need to go kick the door in and hold these people down and vaccinate them. And that's the, yeah. that's the liberal side. <laughs> That's the liberal side of the because like, because we forgot to look up the word liberal before no, we I, came to. I, I, I mean, no, I think I it's think directly it's appropriate. Uh, yeah, this like is if we think about yeah, uh, uh, Will's uh, description of this as an addiction problem, right? That's what makes uh, good consumers, right? So these uh, yep. people who are having these sorts of outsized reactions right are the ones that you want to find yeah right because sure. they are going to sort mm -hmm. of uh, uh drive uh your especially if you're working on something like youtube right and you're getting money essentially per view uh or anything that's money per click right that's a beautiful sort of uh person to target um and i think that the more um, you are able to sort of uh, expose students to not that engagement with the idea in the moment, but like how is the broader community working? What creates uh, authenticity or better like legitimation in this community? Uh, how are, what forms are they sharing the ideas in? What's underlying, when they start talking about their lives, what do they say about the rest of their lives? Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think that that produces a very different reaction where students can start to kind of see not just what these communities are, but what people are getting out of the interactions in a way that moves them away from like, do they believe X and Y about yeah. the vaccine? Like that's not even an interesting question any no, longer. No, absolutely not. This is exact. This is a really good, these are really good concrete examples of swimming with the current swimming with the riptide. I think is like, because, you know, if you think about information, what is information, right? We could take the McLuhan and say, well, light is information. I don't know if that's particularly useful. It's useful for Marshall McLuhan's ideas, but um, when we think about it, like this is all community. There's no way of getting out of this as being community determined. It's like when people march around and they're like, if you don't believe in science, don't talk to me. You're basically just saying you're not welcome in my club. 
you're not advancing any kind of politics. You're not advancing any kind of like any of the traditional functions of rhetoric. They're like the, these kind of approaches, and it's sad to see rhetoricians take these kind of approaches because they're just this is like the death of of what rhetoric is meant to do, which is to you know uh, it's mo- it's meant to kick up dust and stir things up and make things cloudier rather than clarify. Most of the time. disagree with you to one extent that no. it's not doing any of the traditional functions of rhetoric. It's doing one very well, and that's maintenance. And the more and more I think we've seen, the more and more people are focused on maintenance, like getting people to remain focused on their in-group, donating money to their in-group, continue to raise awareness of the in-group, as opposed to any sort of attempt to modify people outside of their particular sphere. Yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I hate to, it, I hate it, to it, say it. I, I think I have a minority view of, uh, of rhetoric at its best. But yeah, you're right. I mean, this is what we've seen historically. You know, you I mean, mentioned this whole idea of, you know, being part of an in-group and, you know, the the trend of individuals who are saying, you know, if you don't believe in science or if you don't trust science, then, you know, I don't want to talk to you. Right. right? I think it's really important to note that the side effects of excluding these individuals, aside from just, you know, causing them to become, you know, to sort of fracture off and becoming their own, you know, uh, subunit, the the significant and important side effect to note is that these, you know, so many of these individuals who are now ex- excluded are now, you know, challenging what we consider to be truth and expertise, mm-hmm. right? And if you challenge truth and if you challenge expertise, then the foundations of, you know, this knowledge can be just swept away and you know i think that's you know that speaks to kate's example of the the uh oh what's that organization called uh you know the america's frontline doctors right you know by instilling this idea of doubt and you now challenge expertise at every step of the way and you create this new expertise you can start to undo the exclusionary narrative that's a result of a misuse of quote good rhetoric unquote yeah i think we forgot that expertise is an inventional resource not a avoidance of rhetoric right which is the way that a lot of i mean i mean it's just shocking to me how many people in rhetoric is this connected to the decline of of uh, intercollegiate debate and the turning of intercollegiate ba- debate over to people who aren't uh, scholars, who aren't uh, interested in, in uh, research questions. They're, they're kind of like uh, football coaches. They're athletic coaches is what we've turned intercollegiate debate over to. For the most part, there are exceptions. Even on this show, there are exceptions to this approach. Um, but um, I would think that this might be connected to it. Do you think, I guess the question we have to kind of get into the end of the program here with is, do we think that debate's an antidote? An, an antidote? An inoculant? Uh, does it have any relation to any of this uh, misinformation at all through debate? Could we come up with a good theory of misinformation? Because, I mean, I think people talk about misinformation and fake news. There's no good theory. What's the theory? Like, how would I be able to determine misinformation or information from each other without the benefit of a long period of time to see how it shakes out? I mean, it's the same thing as fallacies. Do we have a theory of fallacy that's separate from use? The answer is no. Like, <laughs> we just don't. You can't. We just have particulars. We don't have a theory. Same thing with misinformation. You know it when you see it sort of thing. Yeah, like, like, yeah. It used to be the conception. This is really bad, I think. If you want to teach people, oh, these sources of information are bad and these are good, you're just getting dragged out deeper into the sea of of conspiracy theory and excluded groups like Will was talking about. And um, 
all that bad kind of fragmentation stuff. I do think rhetoric is an anti-fragmentary force. So, I mean, what's our take on, uh, I mean, this is supposedly at least our our historical, our ancestral homeland of the podcast is intercollegiate debate. What's the role of intercollegiate debate here? Do we have a take on that? I mean, it's already such an, like, at least if we're talking about from the competitive side, it's already such an exclusive. There is no other side, I would say, these yeah. days. I mean. But, but, okay, so, like, if we're only worried about the students within a debate club in a particular school, we've already lost that yeah. battle. No, like, I, you're, already taking, you're already taking a certain selection of students. Unless it's part of the core curriculum right. to be used to debating ideas. And I don't know that. I, I, and even at that point, I don't know what it would do. Yeah, I mean, who's, um, who out like, there is interested in teaching something other than how to win a tournament round? That's the question, right? Well, Kate, that's it. I'm out of I'm out of suggestions. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult because um, on I, I think that at least speaking from a policy debate perspective, which is where most of my experience comes from, uh, they have this strangely bifurcated. Uh, understanding of evidence and and things like that, where on the one hand, um, there is a real sense of expertism, um, not only in sort of how they talk about evidence and its role, like essentially your first speeches are reading footnotes really quickly. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um, but, we've, all, we've all been there. Um, and, and of course, uh, tied with that is also um, expertise and performance. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, there is that sort of double consciousness where we also know um, that a ton of the people we're reading are hacks, um, that a ton of the arguments we're making are absolutely silly. Ashtar. Um, that, yeah, that they have been. I almost said Trogdor. I realize. Thank you for correcting me and saying it was Ashtar. How could you ever forget <laughs> Ashtar and the Seventh Galactic Fleet? How could you ever forget that, George? wasn't a policy debater in okay the that's a good that's a good yeah okay that's a, that's actually the true answer to that question okay go ahead and Kate. so yeah but so i think what what's happening is that that sort of alchemy is creating um the expert in form right and so yeah, the expert in yeah, form yeah, yeah, can yeah, also yeah. uh uh do things wrong and and get you to believe it's right and that's fine right? Yep, right um right but it doesn't necessarily create um and well I, i'll say positively it also creates someone who knows that evidence is what you make it yeah I right think I, yeah that's a really good point actually is that i mean maybe a cynical view of evidence as just being part of the game is actually a really nice way to teach reasoning and a really good way to combat misinformation as opposed to like i mean what do we have in classrooms today we have this valorization of particular kinds of experts in particular kinds of places who probably shouldn't have a pass to get out of defending their their takes, right? Like, I mean, Fauci needs to defend his take, right? Um, any scientist needs to defend their take. And just to say, well, I'm a scientist, go screw yourself, or I'm a doctor, is just as bad as saying, well, I'm not here to educate you, do your own research, like right-wingers do on the internet, in my view. So a theory of misinformation, I think, permits this kind of behavior. But yep. putting people in there and saying, well, is this a good a good card, like we would say to, they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, well, what do you think? Oh, I don't know. It's like, well, welcome to debate, right? That's the way to teach that stuff. Yeah, it's, in it's a very interesting perspective where you've sort of seen 
like where Dr. Fauci has to go from being an epidemiologist to being like a political rhetorician. And there's no way around it, at least in terms of unless they want someone else to be sort of the public spokesperson of the I forget the exact name of his organization. Like it's something in infect you something national government disease. Allergy and infectious disease. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but without like that's a weird position to put someone who is an epidemiologist into it's weird that like, we think that though isn't that weird that we think that isn't it weird that we think a, a scientist little? wouldn't be able to go into the public and say here's why here's why science is good like he can't even do it who can do it neil degrasse tyson well, I mean, can't I, do it he just makes fun of people he can't do it uh, you know a uh, bill nye he can't do it no. i mean nobody who can do it shocked by is that for the past decade and a half at least we have seen a giant explosion in things called science communication that do not come out yeah. of communication programs. Like right. Yale has yeah, one. Yeah, right, right, right. They're right. usually in centers. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, take oh, that, right. Yale. Where's yeah. your and, communication program? Yeah, Yale. What have you ever it, done, a, Yale? <laughs> it doesn't seem like um, it, very much of, uh, at least at the top of our communication, um, has followed much of those recommendations and to the extent that they were, um, they were not particularly good. That's and right. I think that if you talk to a group of rhetoricians, the very first thing we're going to say that we have been saying literally since the 1990s, at least, is that you have to justify why we should trust you. Yep, your position right. doesn't do it. Your lab coat doesn't do it. Your diploma doesn't do it. Right. And it has to be. Um, accepted by the people you need yeah. to accept it yeah you this can't throw your think, resume at the audience yeah. and expect them to follow this hey. makes me uh this makes me think of that relationship between what's a what's a inventional resource and what's an argument and i think that's the confusion we get. that's what i'm starting to think in this conversation is that we've we've confused that in our society to say a diploma or conducting an experiment is an argument no no that's a re that's an inventional resource so I mean, people have been challenging experts for centuries. Um, there's lots of this going on. But the difference now is we think that somehow challenging an expert is inappropriate. And that, I think, dangerously moves you away from the ground of democracy into something like some kind of scientific authoritarianism or some kind of um, oligarchy if you say scientists cannot be challenged on their, on their views. Um, if you're thinking about public unpopular. policy – which right. is a real problem. Right. <laughs> but right. the whole but the whole issue is that we associate scientific challenges with like for example the abuse that Galileo had to put up with. Sure. But most somewhat mythic, but like, you know, it's hard for us to separate challenging a particular scientist's ability to persuade or even their particular conclusions they're coming to from a particular study with like putting with like the inquisitions and putting scientists to death for or heresy or other things like that. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, do I, think yeah, that there's yeah, a sort yeah. of very, very religious sort of, yeah, we um, don't, we don't want to be underpinning to the way we talk about science. Yeah. We don't want to be backwards, but what could be more backwards than having the scientists act like the priests of old saying there is no, this is illegal for you to speak about their challenge. This is which is like Galileo's house arrest. Right. So like the idea of like challenging these truths inappropriate you're not in the position to do that we're the holy people we're the holy men emphasis on men i mean what i mean what's different about that um uh, discourse in the way some people talk about science today um, well no so one's just, making socrates drink hemlock at the very least not yet not yet and it is as larry prelly points out 
Um, as, as much as there may be uh, a, a deep rhetorical sort of topos for traditional scientific uh, credibility, there is as big and deep uh, a rhetorical resources for the the maverick, mm-hmm. the person that goes against the grain, mm-hmm. that heroically speaks the truth. Yep. Right. Yep. Mr. Smith goes be, to Washington. Yeah, and that that is I love it, that it, like has been. Uh, for a long time, uh, uh, marshaled in these moments, right? Uh, that those two things begin to fight against one another. Yeah. And if we're asking about how to be able to say, like, we'll, we'll focus on like COVID and vaccination, right? Um, your problem at that point is uh, you have to speak to the ones who haven't already bought in your traditional topos, yeah, right? Um, mm-hmm. and so you're going to have to figure out another vocabulary. And I think much like in debate where we find very limited vocabulary for the, the value of what we do beyond producing experts who think better because they read a lot, right? <laughs> which falls into the same kind yeah. of problem. I think that, that there also comes for the scientists, um, a, a sudden lack of inspiration in responding in any way beyond that traditional sort of Mertonian sort of invocation of those values. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on the end of the show here. So final thoughts. And if you want to plug anything, now's the time to do it. Cause I think people actually might listen to this episode. I think these podcast carnival people. Um, and also what, what carnival game do you think in the bin would be? Which which Ooh. which traditional carnival game? So we can go around the horn and everybody say your last thoughts on misinformation in society and classroom. Uh, we can start with Will and go from there. And then uh, what what carnival game do you think in the bin is of the What's classic? the one where you dunk people? Like you throw a ball and it dunks you. What's that? Basketball. Tank? Yeah, just a dunk tank. Dunk tank. Yeah, the I think it would be the dunk tank. But is it water right. in there or something? What 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 fluid is in the dunk tank? Not Knowledge. <laughs> I thought it'd be four loco. Coffee. Uh, that's okay. that's coffee. the only. That's you're coffee. asking me, right? Yeah. Like, in the bin, proudly well, brought to you by Four Loco. Great. I wish. Okay, can we at least get the money from Four Loco before we start? No, they're bankrupt. Plugging a very dangerous alcoholic beverage. This is why I always bring. This is why we always bring it up because I think they're out of money and defunct. But anyway, it's okay. We're not really sponsored by anybody. <laughs> believe it or not, people. Believe it or not. Okay. So, all right. Very good. Yeah, final thoughts. Um, I think we have a a large uphill battle that, honestly, we need to approach from multiple angles. And there isn't like a one-size-fits-all approach to addressing this information, right? I think keeping in mind health, keeping in mind like human psychology and human, you know, behavior and the network perspectives, I think are all worthy of consideration. And there might be alternative perspectives worth keeping in mind as well but it's it's going to require multiple individuals in the kitchen to actually create this cake that is handling you know not, not even cooks just individuals it's literally like multiple individuals working in in the kitchen you know multiple uh cooks in the kitchen it's a piece yeah. of cake to bake pretty cake <laughs> as we learned uh. from stephanie in lazy town so I think uh, for last thoughts, 
Um, get used to uh, get comfortable uh, with misinformation. It's everywhere. Um, and if there are real problems, uh, get better at making your case. Because uh, yeah. that's at the end yeah. of the day, that's all we got. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and let's see. For the carnival 100%. game, I think that in the bin would be um, the game where you throw ping pong balls into the uh, uh, goldfish things. Because oh, goldfish beer pong. Way easier. Yes. It's way easier than you would think to wind up with a bunch of new friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, they used to put the goldfish in colored water. Do you remember? Did anybody remember this animal abuse? I think yeah, I yeah. do remember that. It's like toxic That's problematic. Like food coloring. Blue or green. Are goldfish even legally <laughs> considered animals? Does that count? I think so. All my vegetarian friends refuse to eat um, goldfish crackers. Oh my god! For the record, my county fair goldfish lived for years and years. Wow! Now you <laughs> are the typical lifespan of eight minutes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Elderly goldfish is seven minutes old. It's like a grandfather. Her and Purvis Ellison. <laughs> oh wow! Purvis Ellison. That is not a name I was expecting to hear on this podcast, but I am happy that we did. That's great. The twenty never nervous Purvis. Wow. All right, George, final thoughts and uh, carnival game well, speculation. I, I hope that whatever amount of tickets that you paid at the front in order to listen to this podcast that you feel like you got your money's worth. I feel like we're much more of the rhetorical ring toss game where you're trying to fit the ring on those glass bottles because we make a lot of noise. We don't know that we've done anything productive, but occasionally there are some prizes of wisdom that can be won, although as difficult as it might be. Yeah, a, st- um, a stuffed animal full of uh, carcinogenic fibers made in China. Yes, that, that has a label from the state of California Perfect. telling you that they're required to tell you about how carcinogenic it is. Uh, I will say that uh, the thing I think we need to fight this, um, and I think it really crystallized for me when we talked about like uh, people just sort of throwing their credentials at people, is humility. Like, oh. recognize your ability to be wrong. Recognize your recognize like the difficulty of like systems and people to deal with this particular problem. And recognize your own limitations when it comes to persuading people. There is not going to be a classroom in the world in which you will get all your students on the same page. And if there were, that would probably be more of a problem than a benefit. So remember, like, like be patient with people who don't see the world the way that you do and recognize that there is value to their worldview. It, it may not be obvious, but there is probably something there that you could probably take from. So like approach situations with humility. Don't expect your credentials are going to carry your day for persuading people. There's limitations to how good you are when it comes to persuading people and recognize that this is a, this is a battle that we've been fighting since the beginning of time that will get harder before it gets easier. Since the dawn of time. (laughs) Since the dawn of time, you know, it's going to be a good, you know, it's going to be a good paper when it starts like that. Since the dawn of time. People have been working on misinformation. Yeah, I, I guess I would say I think, what we bring to you is yeah <laughs> the pernicious the pernicious harms of misinformation. That's what we should call this episode. Um, I don't even know if per- pernicious is still popular. Anyway, uh, we're running out of time, so let me get my thoughts. I think I mean I don't know if it's a carnival game or not, but skee ball, right? I think skee ball is in the bin. It like looks deceptively simple. You feel like why can't they nail it? This is easy. Why can't they nail it? Occasionally it produces tickets that it would be cheaper to go buy the stuff at the dollar store than to spend all your money on a skee ball to do that. And you're just drawn to it, even though it's like ancient wooden balls and kind of a stupid game. You're drawn yes. to it 
every time you go to the carnival, you're just drawn to you, it. And you're like, this should be easy. Why can't they nail it? You, sp- hey, you spend uh, $20 to win one small pack of Smarties that was manufactured in 1984. Yeah, right. Or like $38 for a pencil with a rubber frog on the end of it. And you're like, I won. It's like, no. That there's no better definition. Name. There's no better definition of being a loser than that <laughs> result. You get a goldfish. Well, the goldfish is like that's a unique. <laughs> that's a unique moment in. Uh, I I I I I feel like when I you die, can say, I'm you can be... save up your tickets and get a Hello Kitty George Foreman grill if you, you if go. you go there like a, about nice. a month or so. I feel like when I go to the afterlife, I'm going to be confronted with by hundreds of goldfish in colored water bags floating towards me, saying, "Why? Why did Why you do did this? Did you make me green, Steve? Why did you do this to me? I didn't put the food coloring in there. I didn't do it. Nobody told me. You were complicit in a larger system. Anyway, my my final takeaway, I think, is echoing a lot of the things we heard here, which is uh, stop calling names. Like nobody wants to be called a bad name, including information. Stop calling it misinformation. Just instead of saying you got your stuff in the wrong source, why do you think that way? Why do you think this is good? And talk to your students that way. I think that's a really good way of sort of uh, of dealing with it. Uh, swim with the current, not against it. Informate like good sources aren't going to save. Uh, your students from making mistakes or in your community and uh, you know we need to really think about how social media really works it's not a community Uh, it's an advertising sales platform and so when we worry about Facebook not working it's designed not to work so you know get away from that for your politics go do something else anyway thank you George Fitzpatrick Dr. Kate Morrison Dr. Will Silverman I'm Dr. Steve Iano and thank you for listening in the bin Uh, please keep an eye out for the other participants in the big rhetorical podcast Carnival 2021 Uh, and you can google that search for that it's all over the place in the bin is available at anchor.fm slash in the bin thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll see you around whenever we feel like doing another one I guess bye